Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. And that's the tragedy of this case, is that they took down the safety precautions that they had put in place 20 years before when they redid the street. And this is the kind of situation where the city has to be held accountable for this kind of behavior. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, how are you doing this uh, this week when not much gets done? Um, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Well, you know, I was in Nashville, so really nothing was getting done for me because yeah. yeah it was- so how, I mean, what was it like around, I mean, so uh, for all of our listeners, I, I, we're, we're uh, after Christmas before New Year's and this yeah. is going to release in a couple of weeks, but Yvonne was in Nashville at the time of the, uh, of the, the bombing. Yeah. The I mean, far enough. Downtown? No, I was far enough outside where, I mean, my family lives in the, in the suburbs way far from Nashville, but close enough that, and luckily, you know, I wouldn't even be talking about this, but luckily for the, you know, for the most part, people weren't seriously hurt and, um, it's just horrible property damage and obviously not good for the city. But, um, we saw it on the, on the news Christmas morning and then the T the TV went out, the phones went out, the internet went out. Um, and my parents have AT&T. So, um, there was a good like 24 hours where we just did not know what was happening. And I was like, just basically schooling them on the best way to kill zombies, like where we should barricade ourselves right. in the house, just in case <laughs> this was how it all starts. Yeah, exactly. In case this was the beginning of the end. So your so your whole Christmas Day, you had uh, no uh, internet or phone two and a half what? two and a half days, no internet, oh and this God. this cell network was so I guess bogged down. And you know, my parents live kind of further out, so it's not super um, urban that I couldn't even like text anybody or like 911 was down. It was so bizarre. But anyway, even less work got done than usual. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I'm glad you weren't trying to work on Christmas Day, although yeah. uh, no, we would appreciate not. it. Yeah. Of course. Um, all right. Well, let's go ahead and welcome on our three uh, fantastic trial lawyers from Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and try not to murder their names, uh, but uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and introduce Katrina Taraska, Joseph uh, uh, Preiser. Preiser. Nope. I Preiser. just screwed that one up. Yeah, Preiser. <laughs> <laughs> and then Ian uh, Alexander. Uh, uh, guys, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you for having us on. Great to meet you. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's fantastic. And this case that we're going to talk about is just such a tragic case, and um, but uh, a difficult case. But it sounds like the litigation um, was very contentious with the city of Chicago, so much so that you got them uh, sanctioned in several different ways, which we'll talk about as uh, as we go on, go along with this. Yeah, but, we've, uh, we've got to thank our guests for joining us during the holidays as well. So thanks, guys, for, yes. for making time to talk to us about this case. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, I want to I want to tell everybody uh, a little bit about each one of you. Um, you all are from the law firm of Goldberg and Goldberg in Chicago, Illinois. And you can look um, look them up at Chicago Medical Malpractice Firm dot com. And uh, Katrina, I'll start with you and uh, and. Uh, uh, Katrina, you uh, specialize in uh, serious injury cases, spinal cord injury, uh, wrongful death complex litigation, as do uh, Ian and Joseph. Um, you're a member of the Illinois Trial Lawyers Association and the American Inns of Court. 
uh, and have been published in the uh, in the Peora Woman magazine. Um, sounds like you had a couple of extraordinary parents. But what I couldn't get over, uh, Katrina, was reading about how when you were uh, I think were you a, a, a young girl, you were involved in a propane gas explosion and had a building collapse on you? Yes. When I was um, five and a half years old, my mother and my brother and I went to visit a family friend. And we lived in Peoria, Illinois, where my father was a pathologist. And at that time, we went to visit a family friend who had just become the manager of a brand new, very large apartment complex. And it was later in the evening. Um, I had just been in a, a, an actual play, Peter Cottontail, and was in a bunny outfit. Oh, man. <laughs> right, exactly. And my mom wanted to show her girlfriend my outfit. So we went to the building and we actually met her um, in the, the apartment clubhouse. And it was a two-story brick building. And it was new construction. And unbeknownst to us, um, the propane line was not sealed. So as the conversation began to flow, when we were inside the building, um, our, our close friend, my mother's next door neighbor, went to show her a piece of electric exercise equipment. And when she um, went and turned the electric bike on, it sparked and oh. the entire uh, two-story building blew up. Oh, my god! Oh, my God. My brother was blown out of the building through the front doors. Um, our family friend was fortunately uh, visible and in the debris, but able to be accessed. But my mother and I were buried under oh, the wow. for uh, many hours. And um, it took quite a bit of time for them to extract us. And as a consequence of that accident, um, I had extensive uh, second and third degree scars on my hands, uh, arms, legs, chest, and face. And fortunately, um, I ended up being treated in the one and only downstate medical center that my father and a reconstructive and plastic surgeon had opened two years before this accident. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my exactly. goodness. So it was... It was pretty extraordinary, but I've had uh, a number of near misses, and I, I'm just so grateful to God that I had the parents that I did, and I'm grateful to God that, you know, I was able to um, come out of it, and uh, certainly it made me a much different person than I would have been if I had not been through that. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's just, uh, that's just amazing. And I'm, I'm glad that, uh, you were able to recover from that and that we're able to talk to you uh, here today. Yeah. It um, makes me sound pretty ridiculous for complaining about the internet. Exactly. Well, <laughs> and I also want to introduce Ian Alexander. Ian has been a uh, trial lawyer uh, for over 20 years as a super lawyer, has been named as one of the top 100 lawyers, also specializes in catastrophic injuries, medical malpractice, complex personal injuries, has been lead counsel in several uh, what sound like train and, and air crash disaster cases. Uh, and um, has uh, had a number of cases. All, all of our uh, lawyers in the, in the law firm of Goldberg and Goldberg have, have uh, just had tremendous success and been involved in several high-profile cases. Uh, but two things really stuck out uh, to me about yours, uh, Ian. One, one was that you wrote an article called uh, Zen and the Art of Adverse Examination, which I thought was uh, at least- Did you a read great, it? 
I, I, I read the title. I, 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 it's, it, sounded, it sounds very I was going to say, you and my wife might have been the only two right. people that ever read the article. Exactly. The, and I don't the other, know if you really read it. <laughs> that's right. You're right. I can tell you my wife hasn't read any of my legal writings that I've written. <laughs> So um, uh, the, the other thing that I stuck out is that you were featured on the Lifetime TV show called Surviving R. Kelly 2, The Reckoning. Yes. Um, so I didn't know, were you involved in the litigation surrounding R. Kelly? I was. So okay. I, I was the lawyer that represented the very first victim of R. Kelly to come forward, a woman named Tiffany Hawkins. And uh, this was when I was 25 years old. So 25 years ago. And uh, I have, over the past 25 years, represented many of the victims, uh, some of them pro bono after their cases have either been resolved or they're just with no case to bring. Um, and I've, you know, always offered my assistance to these women that have been victimized by what I consider to be a, a serial predator of children uh, for free. Uh, in the hopes that uh, you know some some good karma can can help you know finally make make this man meet his end and wind up in jail. Yeah. Uh, so I continue to represent these women now, even though um, there's not much more to do now except shepherd them uh, back and forth to grand jury appearances and kind of. Um, counsel them, but yeah, I I, I, re I was I was uh, lucky enough to have a client that was brave and wanted to do that show, and um, it's it's important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that is uh, that that's very important work, um, and um, it, I, I agree. I mean, some of the stories you've heard about um, about him and what he's done um, are just shocking. Yeah. And that show or that or series or whatever you want to call it, um, for those of you who haven't seen it, is really good. It was really well done. So check it out. The, the people that created the show and did the interviewing, especially Sudi, who was the executive producer of the, um, the second part, were, were terrific people that were really concerned with um, what was going to happen to R. Kelly's victims down the road. Uh, and it wasn't just let's let's talk about what happened in the sensational kind of uh, story about famous man victimizing little girls. But really, how are these women going to turn the corner? And Tiffany Hawkins, who is another person that you guys you guys should talk to her, um, is just a fantastic example of somebody that came through a tragedy and has really she's more than the survivor she's just amazing so interesting yeah yeah um all right well and uh, last but not, certainly not least is uh joseph prizer joseph uh uh, has been with uh, Goldberg and Bo Goldberg since 2015, but before that was uh, with the Cook County State Attorney's Office, where I saw that you tried more than 600 cases to verdict, uh, and uh, and also have a dual uh, JD and MBA uh, from Loyola University. Uh, also works in catastrophic uh, um, injury cases, medical malpractice, and wrongful death cases. And then I also saw that your uh, softball team. I think uh, Yvonne Joseph would fit in at our firm because uh, his softball team 
uh, has won nine of the last 12 league championships, what I saw. So uh, that, that is quite the, uh, quite the record. And, and you're definitely going to play on my team when you come down. Here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, that, that needs to be updated. I think in terms of what we've done, what we've won, but uh, yeah, I was a state's attorney for five, for about five years before I joined Goldberg and Goldberg. And during that time, um, I spent a lot of time in the traffic division and prosecute a lot of DUIs, which was interesting because this was my first jury trial in the civil realm. And it really kind of dovetailed together. I was able to actually bring in a forensic scientist uh, to talk and testify in this case. So it was really helpful, I thought, and an interesting um, transition from that criminal realm to uh, civil. Yeah, yeah. Well, and for this case especially, I would think that your experience in that was uh, was just really crucial. Um, let's let's talk about this case. Um, the name of the case, which was tried back in 2016, uh, was uh, on behalf of the estate of Irma Sabanovic, uh, brought by her father Fahim, uh, and she also had um, uh, uh, twin sisters not not her twin, but uh, sisters who were twins, uh, Amra and Alma. Uh, versus the city of Chicago. Um, so back in uh, May of 2011, uh, Irma, who was a 25-year-old model, uh, beautiful young woman who had been uh, what sounded like a, a burgeoning career in both uh, TV and um, and on the internet and and in print media as far as a, as far as a model. Um, I think she modeled under the name of Ira Blackbird. I saw that somewhere. Um, she, uh, had been at, at, a, um, been with her father, uh, having coffee. And then later on had been at the place where she worked, which I think was called, uh, Chucky's bar. Uh, and that, that will be a, a big point of what the defense was in this case. But uh, I think she was going to pick up her boyfriend who was a DJ at a club, uh, and it was about 2 AM on the morning of May 12th. Uh, she got onto and you guys are going to have to explain this to me, but uh, I guess there's a man-made island in the Chicago River called Goose Island, um, and that uh, there's a road on there called uh, called Blackhawk Street. Uh, and basically, as you're driving on Blackhawk Street, uh, the road ends and then just goes down into the Chicago River. About uh, I think I saw somewhere about 20 feet below the roadway. Um, so, so what happened with, with Irma was that she was, she was going to pick up her boyfriend. She had gotten lost. Uh, and I think there was actually a text message that she had uh, texted somebody that she was lost. Uh, and so she was driving down this road and uh, there was no barricade, no Jersey barriers, uh, mm. not much in the way of signage. Now the, the city uh, certainly tried to point out that there was a, a no outlet sign. Um, but uh, basically drove uh, right off the end of this road uh, over a curb and down into the down into the river uh, where she uh, uh, um, tragically drowned and um, uh, she was missing for nine days. Uh, no one had known what happened to her. Uh, and then I think the uh, police were able to check some video or something and actually found some video and then were able to check the river and, and found her car and, and her body uh, in, in the car about 12 feet under the Chicago River. And um, there, there's, there's a lot more to that. Uh, it, uh, the kind of the place where I, I wanted to start is that um, 
you know, there, I think the key part of your case or what I found most compelling from the case was this picture that you had, because this was nighttime, this was 2 a.m., this picture you had at nighttime looking in the direction that she was looking. And, and you can see lights and buildings on the other side of the river. Um, now, if it's nighttime and you're just driving down the street, it doesn't look like there's a river there. It just looks like it's a street that you're driving down, which is obviously what happened to uh, Irma. And so and, and then the city uh, hadn't put up uh, barricades or I guess it actually had at one point put up barricades. But then those barricades were taken down, uh, which you had to learn through discovery. Uh, and that that, among n numerous other things, ended up in a in a sanctions order against the city of Chicago. Um, but talk a little bit about um, just, you know, I guess developing the case and, and this, you know, the city's position was, well, of course, there's this issue of, of whether or not she had been drinking alcohol. And we'll get into that. Um, but the city's uh, point was, well, you know, there's this no outlet sign. There's this curb that she should have seen. And uh, in there, I think they tried to point out that there were some bushes and trees and things like that. And, and that she should have seen all this, even though it was in the middle of the night. But um, I, I guess, you know, whoever wants to go first and talk about um, some of the work you all did in, in, in uncovering this case and, and, you know, and, and the human factors aspect of it and how it could be deceiving when you're driving down a street like that. So, Steve, I was I'm going to handle this part because I was introduced to this family uh, probably a month after this unfortunate tragedy happened. Uh, one of my best friends, fellow lawyer, introduced the family to me because they knew that I handled complex uh, personal injury cases. And one of the things that struck me about almost immediately about um, the location of where the accident happened is just how desolate and remote it was when you when you consider where it's located within the city of Chicago. And if you don't live here, and even if you did live here, you might not even understand what Goose Island is. It's a it's a man-made island in the middle of the river that is on the it's at the same level as either bank. And you wouldn't even know that you were traveling across Goose Island, if if I talked to nine out of 10 people that live in Chicago, probably couldn't get you there because you just drive all over these very tiny 100-year-old um, bridges over the Chicago River on North Avenue and Division Street. So that's on the north side, and it's, it's near north and near, it's not even considered west. It's sort of right in the heart of the city, but it's a very industrial area. And if you aren't familiar with it, you can absolutely get lost. And it's so what what happened to Irma and nobody figured this out. I mean, the cops didn't have any clue for nine days. It was a stone cold whodunit. They picked her boyfriend up and thought that he had kidnapped her and murdered her um, because she just fell off the face of the earth. And what we found when we got involved, they had finally discovered her because the city had finally run a sonar boat over the area. They had a, a new okay. sonar boat. They ran the sonar boat over where Blackhawk intersects with the Chicago River, which is basically a block or two north of Division Street. So 
in, just right in the middle of the Chicago River. And she was trying to get to where her boyfriend was DJing that night and got lost and drove over the one place in the entire city where the city didn't maintain barricades where the road met the Chicago River. And, and I mean, the one place from all the way north and, and all the way north to, you know, 95th Street or wherever it emptied, wherever the river empties into the canal that ultimately leads to the Mississippi River, there's no other place where they don't maintain the barriers. And when I f went out there for the first time, and I, I don't remember if Joseph might have gone with me or it might have been before Joseph started working with me. Um, I was shocked at all of the detritus of former signs, former barriers, former, former everything that was there. And we didn't really understand how this could have happened because the city was absolutely uncooperative. We went in almost immediately. I think I filed suit. I met the family. I filed suit that the next day and then went in and got a protective order from our judge prohibiting the city from making any alterations to the scene of the accident, preserving all the materials that they had about where, how they controlled traffic on Blackhawk Street. And we went from there and we learned eventually that we didn't learn anything because, you know, without accusing the city of doing anything intentional, they just did not maintain records about the work that they had done at that intersection of the river and Blackhawk Street. And why that was important was because, you know, 20 years before someone else had driven into the river on the other side of the river at Blackhawk Street. And the city in response to that had put up um, signs. Now, even what, what they put up was inadequate, but at least they put up reflective stop signs on the, uh, east side of the river and on the west side. But when they ultimately redid Blackhawk Street, because they redeveloped it, there's a gigantic uh, industrial um, development right, right to the north of where this accident happened. They tore out all the, the warning signs that they had put in and didn't return them. And we didn't find out about that until almost immediately before the trial. And that's sort of the groundwork for what happened here. So the, this kid, a, ca a cab driver that was in a comedy troupe called The Groundlings, which is really famous with Amy Poehler and Tina Fey. His yeah. name was Ricky Roman. And in 1995, he was, who knows what he was having a smoke in between driving people on his cab and drove into the river. And another guy who was just never heard from again, and they eventually found him. What we learned later on, even after our uh, after uh, Irma was discovered, they continued to run um, the sonar boat in that area, and they found a car with some bones of a client of, of eventually someone that became our client, Michael Jansen, uh, a oh. third car that went into the river at Blackhawk Street. Wow. And the only reason they found the only reason they found his bones, he'd been missing for 11 years. And the cops basically told his poor mother that he had, you know, run off to join the circus. I mean, they had no clue what had happened to him. 
And they found, finally, after they found Irma, they kept running the boat over there and they found his remains and were able to, and they pulled uh, his remains up. And I think I had had a press conference uh, when we filed the case and his mom got in touch with me and we represented uh, her as well and her family. Um, so that is the crazy, you know, that's a crazy summary of what happened at this intersection. And the discovery process in this case was, you know, I don't want to say it was flawed, but it, it ultimately worked out where we found out a lot of information. It's just way too little, too late. Right. And the city, the city really, they paid the price because, you know, for whatever reason, they didn't maintain records that they have to maintain. And in Illinois, there's very strong case law that says that, um, you know, corporate memory is corporate memory. And it's not an excuse that, a long time has passed. Once you, as a corporation, and the city's a corporation, once you've learned something, you're that you're stuck with that knowledge. And they they had finally they had the documents, and to the credit of the, of the lawyer working for the city, they turned them over to us. And that's when um, you know, and I, I'm not sure all defense lawyers would do that. Right. They did it, and um, that's when. How there was hell to pay. So, Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digital law marketing. Com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice. It's such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive, as you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day. And they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. So I had read the, 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 uh, the story about Ricky Roman and how he had been there. I had not heard uh, that there was another person who had been missing for so long. Did, uh, did that evidence of your uh, client, uh, Mr. Jansen and, and Ricky Roman, did that come in to the trial? No. 
It did not. No. Okay. It, it, and and was, was that because there had already been a finding of negligence uh, against the city? Well, that might have been part of it. You know, the other thing about they went in on the other side of the river. So right. it was a defect. And well, it's, I take that back. Ricky Roman went in on the other side of the river. We didn't, we don't know what side of the river Michael Jansen went in. Um, we have some thoughts, but ultimately it doesn't matter because I think, I think that both sides of the river was a defective situation and dangerous. Right. But it, it, by the time we got to trial, uh, we hadn't focused on that one because it probably was unlikely that it would ever, you know, be admissible anyway. And then we we got our sanctions order. So it wasn't and our sanctions order basically was a finding of, of negligence. Right. Um, and we didn't uh, we didn't have to go down that road. Yeah. And I, you know, one thing I usually do, and I, I just forgot, um, is I tell everybody what the verdict was. Um, the verdict uh, was a 13.8 or $13,890,000 against the city. They found uh, uh, your client Irma to be 10% at fault. So uh, that reduced the verdict down to 12,500,000. Uh, but just a, a, a a great verdict, but uh, let's talk about the discovery battles in this case, because it, um, from what I read, it, it sounded like it, it wasn't just one incident. There was the incident with the work order, um, which I, I, I think was about, you know, the fact that they had had something up there in the in the 90s and then that had, had been taken down. And then and then I, I wasn't sure I understood exactly uh, what the evidence was or what the what was learned about uh, whether or not there was a Jersey barrier there at the time of the uh, at the time of the incident. And then, of course, the, uh, uh, there's a number of other things that the, that the court mentions in sanctions order. But walk us through a little bit the discovery process and just sort of the things that you learned and how you had to learn them and, and the in the sanctions order that the court entered. So I'll, I'll start this and then Joseph and. So just so you know, Joseph and I worked this case up, and four days before the trial, I had a, a personal health issue come up. Oh, okay. And, you know, every trial lawyer's nightmare that you're about to start a trial and you can't go. And Katrina stepped in for me, and what an awesome result for somebody that had four days to get ready for trial. Oh my wow. goodness. I, I didn't even know that part of the story. I mean, that's uh, that's amazing. Katrina jumped in for me and took over. And Joe, I mean, Joseph was still there. Joseph knew everything about the case, but Katrina learned the case, got ready. And, you know, every trial lawyer's nightmare, you gotta, you have to bow out. Then your partner gets a, a $14 million verdict. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, you know, but I have to give <laughs> Katrina credit. That after that trial, I did not think that I would ever do that again. <laughs> it was amazing. It was really, and honestly, I got to tell you, it was really frightening because I I had not had any involvement in the case at all, not none. So, you know, knowing how much that Ian and Joseph have put into this case, you know, I I just could not allow their work to, you know, fall on hollow ground and I swear if it wasn't for the both of them 
literally spoon feeding me the case in the course of the trial. There's no way I could have presented the case that, you know, what's ultimately presented in it. And it was very stressful, but honestly, <laughs> God, it was a, it was a collaborative effort. And I can tell you after trying this case and after the verdict that we ended up getting, I'm not afraid to try any case again. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's no trial that I won't do in a week. So. <laughs> yeah. uh, That's uh, Steve, I, uh, I just want to say something about our process. Yeah. We're a, we're a very, um, you know, choosy firm. We have, you know, I, I think now there's seven of us. Everybody's very experienced. The firm is called Goldberg and Goldberg, and it's our partner. I, you know, there are other lawyers intimately involved in this case. You know, first of all, my partner and mentor, Barry Goldberg, was instrumental in a lot of the issues that we dealt with uh, pre-suit. And um, you know, I say pre-suit, pre-trial. And Joseph's dad, Marty Prizer, who was a former lawyer with the city of Chicago, um, did a ton of work on this case and we work we we take a team approach on every case and yeah that's great how we've done it um you know there might be other ways to handle cases but we this is the only way that we know how to do it um so this was a real collaborative effort amongst us all and could listen i mean you know I know that pre-trial, I did amazing work on this case, as did Joseph and Barry, but that doesn't take anything away from what Katrina did. Listen, I, I don't know many lawyers that could jump in and learn a case in four days Yeah, and, and put up a $14 million verdict. No, that's amazing. So, uh, that that this, is so, truly amazing. You know, and that's we did crazy. that because- yeah, That's all I can say. There are a lot of prayers. Going into <laughs> the the alternative was waiting a long time that for this trial to see the light of day, and that we weren't even guaranteed that a judge would uh, would allow us to continue. So Katrina didn't hesitate when you know her number was called. She stepped up to the plate and did her work. But you know that having been said, the case we had set the case up in such a way that she was able to do it because we did a lot of work pre-trial um, to get us to the five-yard line. And Joseph can tell you a lot about that. I'll let Joseph, because he hasn't opened his mouth yet, explain <laughs> what we did. And I'll just, I'll just say in a general sense, what happened was we learned about the work order. Then when we had a hearing about the work order, we learned that they had done traffic studies you know, one of the things we were concerned about is that we weren't going to be able to prove that the city knew about their um, the fact that they had removed the barricades, even though knowledge is assumed because of its corporate memory. Whenever you're dealing with the city, you're dealing with all kinds of municipal and, um, you know, all kinds of immunities. And so we, this is really about how they maintain the roadwork. So we learned that there were traffic studies done that showed how many cars went across the intersection. And then we learned when I took the deposition of their reconstructionist, he showed us uh, a guy named Fred Monick, I think was his name. They showed us some pictures that they had been provided. He had been provided from the city of Chicago that were older pictures. And you could see 
that, oh, I'm sorry, I take that back. He, they, they showed us some enhanced video of the actual accident. We had video of the accident. They enhanced it. And in the enhanced video for the first time, you could see that there were some Jersey barricades located where the accident happened. At the time that the accident happened, something the city had denied all along. So that was sort of the third, you know, nail in the coffin for them. And so Joseph can expand on that a little bit. So, yeah, we found out about the, the Jersey barrier that was there that had been denied all along. And importantly, that Jersey barrier wasn't in the roadway. It was kind of off to the side. But when we look back, we saw it in land plots and certain other schemes are that the city had provided but they had denied in, in written interrogatories that there had ever been any jersey barriers placed and one thing that we learned both the the jansen case and the sabanovic case have been joined because they are so similar for purposes of discovery and one thing we learned was how the city conducted their discovery uh for written discovery which is you know for these types of uh, property cases that occur on roadways, there's a Department of Transportation, and the hierarchy of the Department of Transportation is broken up into about six or, or I think seven or nine divisions, I forget at this time. And what they would do is they go to one guy in the signs division in one of the divisions and give him the written discovery. He would search only in his department, and then he'd sign the, the affidavit saying that they had completed a complete search. And so what ended up happening is that's how we continue to get further secretion of documents down the road is that they look in other departments, our understanding is, and find new documents and prevent, uh, give those to us down the road um, after already saying that they had done a full corporate search. And um, that's, that's really kind of what happened. And we kept learning this information up until you know, just days before the trial, and this had been uh, an issue, we'd filed, I think, three different motions for sanctions, each time compiling new information. And I, I think at the end of it, um, the judge was was so frustrated with the city's discovery practice, he, he ordered a really severe sanction. And I think it's important for people who aren't practicing in Illinois, well, in, in Cook County to understand is that Cook County has a very different civil litigation process. So we have motion judges and we have trial judges. And so the motion judges hear everything up until the time that a case is certified for trial, meaning that it's ready to go. And then it goes to a different judge. So what ended up happening is we had a judge, the motion judge, giving us a very severe sanction against the city and then going to a trial judge and trying to have the trial judge understand everything that had happened, which the trial judge did a great job. But what ended up happening in the case is the case that we had worked up had been a lot about the negligence of the city, especially getting around Illinois' Tort Immunity Act for the municipalities proving that there had been something there at one point that had not been maintained. Um, and when we got to the trial judge, the trial judge said we couldn't talk about any, any of the negligence. Otherwise, we'd lose our sanction and the city would be able to bring in all the defensive negligence. So now Katrina, on top of having to yeah. prepare a case in four days, 
we're kind of having on our on our feet to rework a case and rework what we were originally kind of focusing on, which was the negligence of the city, and change that to approximate cost so that we didn't lose, you know, the striking of, of part portions of the city's answer. Yeah, I, I, I was just going to say, I noticed during the opening how many objections there were on causation. And I, I was I was reading this. I'm like, I don't understand what they're right. you know, talking about. Like, why are they why are they worried about whether or not this is causation? But that makes perfect sense. So so basically, the, since the negligence had already been found against the city, the judge wasn't going to let you get into proving any more negligence or or even really talking about the negligence right. against the city. But okay. it was it was a very it, I have to tell you, that was the one thing about the case that made it so fundamentally different, because it's rare that you get that kind of a sanction. So, frankly, to have a judge um, enter that kind of sanction and, and think about it, it it's it's a sanction uh, based upon noncompliance with discovery. But in Illinois, sanctions are not supposed to be punitive. They are supposed to bring about compliance with discovery. And it's a very it's a very unusual uh, remedy because when a court ultimately uh, strikes an answer or deems certain elements of the complaint admitted, that's a very big deal. The problem was then the case was sent to the trial judge and the trial judge has to balance that sanction knowing that the rest of the allegations still need to be, um, you know, the plaintiff has to meet that burden of proof. Yeah. So what we were faced with was a very, very, very strict order. And, and it kept coming up throughout the entire trial that we needed to prove proximate cause, that the negligence proximately caused the car to go into the river, not that it caused an accident, but that, the car went into the river and Irma drowned. And it was such a fine line because if I tried to, you know, elicit the testimony and our human factors expert was phenomenal. And let me just mention one thing, Steve, because you you started off with this. And this is such a huge point. When you're driving down Blackhawk Street, and it just so happens that I live here now in, in Old Town, right here by the, the area where the accident was. Oh, wow. So when you're driving on Blackhawk Street at night, what what appears it's called a um, it's called a deceptive visual cue. So what you see at nighttime is you see the road right in front of you, and then as you're getting closer to the end of Blackhawk Street, there's sort of this dead space. Just it, it, literally at nighttime, it just appears to be black. But what you focus on as a driver or all of the lights and all of the illuminated buildings on the other side of the street. And what you don't realize is that that area of darkness or death space, that's the river. So right. as a driver, you, you it's almost like an optical illusion where you think that the road continues on. So it looks to you as if it's just a road and there's an area of darkness where perhaps there's not well lighting. You know, there, there aren't any of those... Um, traffic control uh, signals or other um, signage or barriers or barricades or reflective, you know, signage that would alert a driver to the fact that there is this tremendous danger in front of you, which is a 20 foot steep hill that literally leads to an eight foot seawall and then into the river. So that was the condition that existed at the time of the accident. But going back to that, we had a phenomenal um 
human factors expert during the trial, and she was fantastic. But I needed to be able to put her on and get from her, her the court's limiting instruction, her opinion on proximate cause, that as a result of the city's negligence, not having that kind of signage, not having those kinds of barricades, that that was the proximate cause for the car going into the river. And it was so difficult because the judge kept telling us, if you in any way get into the substance of the negligence, which has already been admitted, you're opening the door and then the defendant can defend it. Well, you, you know, the, I was just going to say that, I mean, now that I'm thinking about this, now I understand what the basis is. I mean, that had to be especially difficult because a big part of the city's case was the negligence of Irma, or at least the alleged negligence of Irma. And uh, they were alleging that she was she had been drinking, uh, that her uh, blood alcohol level was high. And and uh, and we'll talk about that in a second. But, um, it, you know, and then that she didn't notice the no outlet sign and didn't notice the the curb and things like that. But I, I mean, it, that, that makes it that, that really handcuffs you. I mean, I, I, of course, getting the sanctions order is is a good thing uh, for your case. But it, I mean, the way you had to try it sounds incredibly difficult, especially when you're trying to counter this contributory negligence, comparative negligence analysis that, that the jury's gonna have to go through. So what ended up happening, honestly, I have to tell you is we had to put on a case that was intoxication defense proof. Right. So what we ended up doing, and when I did the examination of our human um, factors expert, is I went through and had her explain why the city's negligence in not having that type of barricade, that type of, you know, of uh, barrier or, you know, those uh, types of cement, you know, I guess they're Jersey barricades that no matter if a person was older, didn't see well at night, was going the speed limit, but hit a patch of ice, was uh, for whatever reason an inexperienced driver, that no matter who they were, if they were operating a, a car under the condition that existed when Irma was operating it, meaning the same rate of speed, applying her brakes before she hit the curb, that it doesn't matter what the reason was, for which they made contact with the curb that at that rate of speed had a barrier or appropriate um, signage or whatever, had that kind of a barricade been there, the person's car would never have gone over and into the water. So we literally had to reconfigure the case and make it an intoxication proof case that that, that could not, that was not gonna be a defense that was gonna work because our human factors expert was going to testify and did testify that had the city not been negligent and had the type of barricades that should have been there for that risk, it would have prevented any errant driver from going over the curb and into the water. But it was so difficult because of that limiting, you know, instruction we kept getting from the judge. And I remember Joseph was sweating bullets when I was doing the examination of the human factors expert, because frankly, I had to get the testimony out of her. And I felt like I was just a hair away from being told by the judge that you 
cross the line, you open the door. And now it's all all of that admitted liability, all that admitted negligence. You know, it's out the window. They can bring in whatever they want. And we it was had amazing experts. Absolutely. Yeah. And we had, so the Katrina hasn't mentioned her name. I'm going to mention her name. Uh, Nancy Grugel, um, at the time she was with um, Robeson. Robeson, but she's not with Robeson anymore. Out of in Denver, she was our human factors expert. We had the world's foremost expert on drowning and the time it takes an automobile to fill with uh, water. Happened to be the same guy. His name was Gordon Giesbrecht. And if you look at look him up, his his nickname is Professor Popsicle, and he's been on David Letterman and all kinds of just that fascinating guy and his special his expertise escaping from drowning vehicles and exposure to the elements basically um that they, they happen to intersect perfectly in this case we had him we had great um every single part we had great toxicology experts because and i know we're going to get into that later um we we worked with uh, a guy named um Mike uh, McCabe, also a former Robeson guy from Philly, and then Joseph had a, someone he worked with at the state's attorney's office, Jennifer Bash, that was able to attack the reliability of the machines that they used to do blood alcohol sampling, even though we didn't have blood in this case because she had been in the river for so long. And then the other thing that we had, which I thought was amazing, and we sort of touched on it, we had really great uh, demonstrative evidence in this case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had. So you saw the photograph that really tells the story of the optical illusion. And we knew from day one that was going to be the theme of our case because it just it was it was the theme of our case that was 100 percent true that everybody could relate to. So we had great photographs that we were able to create. And then the other thing we did was we hired, I had a friend, two friends actually, uh, Eric Petitia and Andrew Stone, who did reality, were, worked in reality TV in California, and they came and did um, a short movie of where they recreated the exact um, perspective of Irma's car as she came around North Branch and then turned on the Blackhawk. And we mounted cameras in the car and we had it at the exact speed. And it really also told the tale of what happened because this, it didn't matter if you were hammered or not, if you were old, young, none of it mattered. If they would have had, as Katrina said, if they would have had Jersey barricades up, you would have, you know, she would have crashed into the, to the barricades, but survived. And that's the tragedy of this case is that they, 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 took down the safety precautions that they had put in place 20 years before when they redid the street and the Wrigley facility went in and they never bothered to maintain the street again. And it's, it's the, this is the kind of situation where the city has to be held accountable for this kind of behavior. And if you've ever practiced in Chicago or Cook County, you know that the city gets the benefit of the doubt, either at the trial court level. I'm not saying we had amazing judges in this case, including in the appellate court, but 
the city gets the benefit of the doubt. I mean, you could see in the transcripts that the judge would say the lawyers for the city were the high, were the hardest working and most underpaid lawyers in the in the town. Said that over and over again. I mean, everyone acknowledged they had an overwhelming job because the city is backwards in the way that they do things. They don't have a computerized system of maintaining files or documents. You know, they when they ultimately found the work order in this case, it was in a it was just misfiled in their drawers. I mean, can you imagine what the drawers look like at the city of Chicago's Department of Science? Can you imagine? I can't imagine. And so that is sort of what, if they hadn't looked in that drawer, we would have never known the shenanigans that the city, not the lawyers, but the city itself was up to. We wouldn't have known. But they, they happened to have an ethical lawyer working for them who, when he, when he realized what happened, he turned it over much to his client's detriment. Yeah. It was definitely confusing and not to go back to talk about stuff we've already talked about, but it seemed like that, especially in terms of causation or I guess, or, or blaming Irma that they could talk about my favorite, my favorite part about this case was the no outlet sign, right? Because I ignore those all the time. I like, I don't even think I thought about what those words even meant until like, I don't know, I was at least 30. <laughs> um, subconscious. It's supposed to be a message to your subconscious. It doesn't mean danger. Right. No, it doesn't mean anything to me. It, it doesn't, doesn't mean like, anything. You're yeah. Right. But um, well, and, but and you, it doesn't even mean the road ends. I mean, it, it, the road could go over and you'd still have no outlet. Exactly it doesn't mean that at all. The expert said is that it is a, it, it's an, it's a basically a non-specific sign that doesn't communicate the information that you really need to process what's there. So, for example, um, someone who sees a no outlet sign, and this is what the expert testified to, Nancy uh, Grugel said, is that many people, uh, when you're on the roadway, you, you're, you're used to the type of signage and you're used to the traffic signals and you're used to the visual cues that you normally see when you're driving in the United States. And we have a very uniform, you know, system of advising, notifying, warning uh, drivers of certain conditions that exist. And a no outlet sign simply is nonspecific. And it could have meant that there was a cul-de-sac at the end right. of the road where you could have turned around. But it didn't rise to the level of communicating the information that you need under but, those circumstances. But but it sounded like the city could talk about in their argument that that was sort of a visual cue or whatever that that right. for, for Irma. But yeah. you all well, was compared, they got they still were entitled to prove comparative fault, so they could talk a, about her fault. Yeah, they could that, talk about her fault, and we couldn't talk about their fault. Right, they could say their signs were enough, but you couldn't right. talk really about why their signs were not enough. Yeah. That's why we had to make it a an intoxication proof case. Wow, because honestly, all they were doing is just you know lighting us up with everything that could have possibly uh, been construed as contributory negligence, and in the end. We just kept hammering the fact that we had an unrebutted testimony from an expert that, frankly, said the one thing that we needed the expert to say, which is right. that had there been a barricade there, it doesn't matter the reason why this person 
would have gone over the end of the, you know, gone to the end of the street and hit the curb. It, it, the accident wouldn't have happened. And, and that's all we could do. And frankly, it was very difficult because, I mean, it, the judge kept telling us, you know, and reminding us what the limits of our case could be in terms of presenting our and, you know, putting on evidence of, of our burden of proof. And it was very stressful because, you know, the defendant is saying all of these things, yeah. and talking about the substance of what was there. And it was it, and we were not in the same position because there was admitted liability. But we still had to establish proximate cause. Yeah. And rebut their case. Right. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com. Legal Technology Services, uh, give them a try. I don't know if you noticed that the city didn't bother to try and uh, rebut our, cons- our, our theory on cause. They concentrated 100% on intoxication. Oh, yeah, yeah. And by the way, I'm just going to tell you, pre-trial, if you would have asked me, and, and listen, be, let's be realistic. We had a 50-50 shot. But if there was ever a chance that we could keep out the intoxication evidence based on the facts of this case, I thought we had a go at it. Because there was no way, because she decomposed in the river for nine days, they could not recover any blood to do a blood alcohol test. And what they did was they took, they couldn't even take yeah, if you can't take blood, you take vitreous, vitreous fluid mm-hmm, from the eye. Right. <clears throat> and they, this, she had decomposed so badly that they could not even get any fluid out of the vitreous. So what they did was they took fluid from the stomach cavity, which is ab- abdominal fluid is so nonspecific. And there's really a lot of evidence, a lot of white paper type evidence that it's not reliable. And so 
they had a medical toxicologist that, you know, said that her blood alcohol level was such and such. And what he did was he took this, the alcohol content in her stomach and he did his hocus pocus, uh, unscientific, in my opinion, hocus pocus, and used that to convert it to blood alcohol content. We fought that. And ultimately, the judge said, you know what? We're going to, I'm going to let this come in. She wound up doing us the biggest favor in the world by doing that. One, we still were able, there was, a, there happened to be a videotape of her at the bar drinking something. We were able to keep that up through a lot of hard work. <clears throat> but the fact that she had been drinking went to the jury. And I'm going to give, Katrina handled, handled this masterfully, as did uh, my partner, Barry Goldberg, when, when they started indoctrinating the jury starting at Bloodier, it was so important to get people on this jury who were going to understand that you can have a few drinks and not be drunk. Or you could have a few drinks and drive home, and that was not against the law to do that. And they really did a great job doing that. But the reason why I said the judge did us a huge favor by allowing that evidence in is... You know, if we're going to be practical, she took away probably a gigantic appellate issue. For them. Right. Yeah. And we, if for all of Katrina's hard work, we would have lost that this verdict if um, if we were able to completely exclude the booze. And, uh, and I, yeah, that's funny because you know what? The one thing that I will tell you is that what was so interesting about what Ian just said and the way that the case was prepared is that. They were essentially, you know, um, extrapolating from um, other evidence that that isn't what you would consider to be reliable for purposes of scientifically proving that someone has a certain blood alcohol level. But what I found to be so interesting is when their case was concluded, ultimately what came out of it is they had never proven that she was impaired. Right, right. Well, they had eyewitnesses that they did not bring, they were unable to bring in because they didn't keep track of the witnesses. Okay, I, I was wondering about that because I saw in closing how you referenced that they didn't bring the witnesses. I didn't know if they, they had been ruled out or they just didn't bring them. So the, they didn't bring the ones who, who, I guess, would have testified that they saw Irma uh, drinking some alcohol. There were a couple witnesses that I had talked to again uh, and gotten statements from. They had gotten state. One thing that went on in this case is that we were conducting discovery and they were conducting discovery sort of ex parte. I don't want to say that it was really discovery, but they would take, they would show up somewhere with a, with a court reporter. We would show up with a court reporter and we would talk to people. And then, you know, we, Ultimately, they were not able to bring in the eyewitnesses that they claimed that they were going to be able to bring in to say that she was at the bar drinking. And, you know, that I don't know why they didn't bring them in, but they didn't try as hard. If I were them, I would have tried a lot harder to bring them in. Yeah, really. Uh, well, so in, and let me just for our listeners, the evidence that at least the uh, the city was saying that they had uh, um, and it sounded like maybe they weren't allowed to talk about the specific number of drinks. But they they at one point I saw mentioned uh, four shots and five beers, including they were at least alleging that she took a beer for the road. <laughs> um, 
in there was the, a lot of drinking allegedly. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> and then, and then, as you said, they they referred to the chest cavity, and I, I guess I had, I was that's kind of I wondering. Meant. I meant the chest cavity, not the. And, and and so that's what I, I, I wasn't familiar with, uh, with that. So are they they're pulling stomach contents when they're pulling from the chest chest cavity, or what? What is the that's fluid right. that they're? I think they were taking pleural fluid out of the chest cavity okay. that was recovered during the autopsy to run testing for the type of, um, you know, ethanol that you would have in your body. And I, what happens is when your body decomposes, obviously it gives off certain gases and, and, and certain chemicals. And one of the things that happens is uh, you can have, um, you know, alcohol uh, that is frankly secondary to the normal, you know, process of decomposition that has nothing to do with blood alcohol. Right. She and fermented so, basically overnight. Right. Okay. Right. So it's not considered to be, you know, an objectively reliable scientific, um, you know, test to prove blood alcohol. And, and that was the issue is that they were extrapolating this evidence. And like I said, in the end, uh, you know, what they did is sort of backdoored the fact that she was intoxicated by doing this type of testing, but it wasn't really reliable and it certainly doesn't prove objectively that she was intoxicated but you still have to prove impairment right well i'm, so I'm the glad video we... there was this video did you i don't did you get a chance to see the video we, we chicago. not the video of her and chucky's yeah that, so in chicago every every establishment that has a liquor license has to have cameras and she's sitting at the bar drinking something that you might think looked like shots and bottles of beer. Um, and we were able to keep that evidence out. So I, I think that if that evidence came in, we prob I don't want to say we would have lost, but it would have been worse for us. Um, and the evidence was, like you said, she was having shots and drinking beers and she took a roadie. And we kept it out because like every... Um, piece of evidence that you want to admit before the jury, you have to lay a foundation. And we, I spent a lot of time before the trial taking depositions of the owner of the bar and the guy that maintained the video system. And the time, you know, we put enough holes in that video and Joseph took a lot of these depths too, where we basically, the city couldn't prove that the video was from the same date that the accident happened. Oh, wow. Because we got the guy who put in the system to say that the time stamping was unreliable. And then the city also wanted to call other patrons at the bar and they never got them in to the courthouse. And I, I would say that was a big mistake on their part because that would they could have had people, if there were eyewitnesses that said, you know, she was impaired, that might have hurt us but they couldn't show they never presented evidence of impairment so it, it didn't come in as evidence but they were through one of their experts able to have that expert talk about it and talk about what he saw and i believe they were shown clips of it but i think katrina did a great job in a closing argument as you probably read really emphasizing that that's not evidence it's speculation and that there wasn't any scientific basis for it yeah. Um, and, and going back to the, the chest cavity fluid, I remember I, I 
specifically got a forensic scientist who used to work for the Illinois State Police, almost primarily doing blood and alcohol contents and then also testing uh, narcotics. And she was able to testify that not only is that unreliable, but all of the ethanol could have been produced in the decomposition process. And, you know, they're, they're, they didn't really have a whole lot of rebuttal evidence to that um, to, to really have a firm footing. They just kind of relied on the number and did something called drink counting, which uh, one of their experts did was he, he, he just counted the number of drinks and said, assuming this is what was in those drinks, even though we don't know, right. this is what her BAC could have been. Right. And, and I saw they you brought the fact, I mean, they probably talked about what she had to eat and the fact that she, I think she weighed like 120 pounds. So she's a very uh, petite uh, woman. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's, that's interesting. I was thinking what, what you just said, Joseph, about the fact that they, I, I saw in the closing that the defense was arguing about the, you know, that their expert had watched the video and that the expert was allowed to rely on the video, even though they hadn't shown it to the jury. And I was thinking to myself, you know, we as lawyers understand that, but you're never going to be able to convince the jury that the video says something that is paid expert watch, but they're not allowing the jury to see. Um, that just really, uh, uh, you know, seemed like a, a, a weak argument on, on the defense's uh, part to try and talk about, well, the expert saw it and you can believe him. Well, I think that's important, too, because, frankly, you know, I was able to tell the jury, you know, why, why isn't that why is it that? The defendant wants you to know that their expert relied on evidence that you didn't have an opportunity to view yourself or personally um, observe and, and to weigh the credibility of that, you know, evidence and to use your own common sense in interpreting that evidence. And I think really that that put a, a big question mark out there because I don't think the jury appreciated the fact that they were. Um, essentially being told by the defense, our experts saw this, so you should believe him. But we're not going to let you see it, and you didn't get to see it. Right, right. And I think that created a lot of doubt. Right. Well, and it's always effective when you can do what you did, Katrina, which is talk about the witnesses that they said that they were going to bring or that the video that they were going to see and then in opening and then come back at at closing and remind the jury that they, you know, that they didn't follow through with that and show the jury what they said they would in the evidence that yeah. cuts both ways. So you, you've got to be really careful. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's your position because you never know at the end of the case, what you're going to end up with. And that was a big concern that we had um, throughout the trial is, is the case that ultimately you end up with at the end. Right. Now, I learned in kindergarten that a picture is worth a thousand words. <laughs> that's right. And that's right. I, I don't, I don't know how to stress this enough. I don't know why they didn't try harder to bring in witnesses to show that video to the jury. Yeah, yeah. Because that would have been terrible. It would have been terrible. We fought tooth and claw to keep every little bit. We treated the intoxication part of the case as little different issues. We fought the credibility of the machine that was used to measure blood alcohol. We fought... The use of uh, chest fluid to, you know, extrapolating that into uh, blood alcohol. We fought the drink count method. And and I'm going to give, I want to just make sure that I give credit to Barry. He's not here. But Barry dismantled their, their um, 
They, for whatever reason, they didn't bring their forensic toxicologist, a guy, um, a Gerald Lycan. He's a frequent flyer here, and we've seen him in other cases. They didn't bring him live, and, and Barry did an evidence deposition of him, and he dismantled him because everything that he said, like Katrina mentioned, was really he really went uh, he, he went out of bounds. He, he he went too far with all of his ideas about the drink count, assume this. And I saw that, and the, the jury had to believe a lot of things to believe his testimony. Right. And on the other hand, we had a pathologist, we had a toxicologist, and we had a um, this woman, Jennifer Bash. I forget what her is. She was a toxicologist too, Joseph, right? Yeah, forensic scientist. Forensic scientist. So she so we had three different experts on this one um, particular point because we all, all we wanted to do was poke holes in this concept that she was intoxicated not that not that she and that she was impaired not just that she had been drinking but that she was impaired because you have to prove that i thought we were going to keep it all out i'll be honest with you and i and i was pretty upset when we didn't but i knew it was probably a 50 50 shot but like i said she the judge did us a, a favor by letting it in in the long run because you know you know, we're not into Pyrrhic victories at our firm. So then that might have been a this might have been a Pyrrhic victory. Right. If we didn't uh you know, if we if we kept out all the intoxication evidence. But here's what's interesting about that. What do you what how, what do you say about the verdict? Because remember, the jury found her 10%. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the question becomes, what was that? What was that 10%? What was right. that contributory negligence? And it's really uh, interesting because honestly, I think in the end, I mean, maybe, maybe I, uh, you know, have a little bit of a different opinion, but in the end, I honestly think that the jury ultimately came to the conclusion that the intoxication wasn't really as important as perhaps we thought it was when it was all said and done because of the fact that we had you know, a human factors expert that testified, doesn't matter the reason, had barriers been there, the car wouldn't have gone over and into right. the water. Right. right. Well, I mean, it's and and as I pointed out, I mean, it does you a favor on appeal. And I mean, in Georgia, we deal that with that a lot because we have apportionment between the parties and non-parties. And so even though it's a it's a pain when you're arguing on appeal and, and the defense is arguing that that the jury screwed something up, but they the jury has already assigned a percentage of fault to that entity exactly. and they're just they're just complaining that it wasn't enough. It really takes all the heat of the out of those arguments on on appeal. Yeah, yeah well, Stephen Yvonne, you know this. When you're at war, you want to win every fight. <laughs> right. Okay? Yeah, exactly. When you are at war, and listen, this was war. I don't forget how long, but blocked it out of my mind, uh, how long this case went on for. But when you're I at war, yeah, it must have been five weeks. It, it was longer than Katrina had to prepare for it, let's say that. By far. And um, so when you're at war, you want to win every point. And, you know, sometimes even maybe if those points in the long run are, are to your detriment. And Katrina's right. We don't know what the jury thought. Yeah. We don't know if they thought that she was just driving too fast. and it had, We don't know. But the point is, 
it's better that they didn't see that video and that yeah. they didn't hear from him. I mean, it just has to be better that they didn't see, they didn't hear from the witnesses that might have said that she had five shots of tequila and six beers. I mean, well, and, and they might have talked about her exhibiting signs of being impaired. Exactly. And, you know, she took a beer for the road. I mean, that's not good. I mean, that's not. Joseph, actually, it's funny because I don't know what the jury thought. Because I, yeah, I Katrina went on vacation. She had a job. <laughs> no, listen, my family had started yeah, no. their vacation and my daughter was very upset. Yeah, no, I get it. You know, that I that I wasn't there. And thankfully, you know, all of the um, trial attorneys from our firm were there. And the jury came back like within a few hours. And Joseph, you actually talked to the jurors afterwards. Um, and I don't know if you had any particular insights, but he did. You did speak to them afterward. And I, I well, I, I do remember that the jurors said what Ian said, which was they didn't, or what Katrina said as well, I think, which is that they didn't find the impairment to be as moving as, as we, we feared. We talked to him a lot about, did you think that she had been drinking? Did you think that she was impaired? And they thought that she had been drinking, but they thought what the city had done was much more significant and right. failing to protect that edge. And the other thing that they said was that they were wowed by Katrina. That's the other thing I remember. And, um, you know, as Katrina said, she, she not only took on a, it was a, it was a professional difficulty, but it was a personal sacrifice because her family, she was planning to go on vacation while this trial was going on. <laughs> her family had gone and she had to, to take off. So um, they were they were really complimentary of her and disappointed she wasn't around to talk to them. Yeah, I did feel bad about that. Steve, I don't know about you, but um, paranoia is in our DNA. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, if you've been doing this kind of work for as long as Katrina and I and Joseph and probably the two of you have been doing it, then you are paranoid about everything. But sometimes you can't see the forest through the trees. I think this case ultimately, sorry, that's my dogs, mm -hmm. 2020. Uh, you know, I, it, obviously this case was about more than alcohol. Yeah. Even though we thought it was about alcohol at the time we were doing this. We thought it was about alcohol, and then we know that the city thought it was only about alcohol. Well, and I, I don't know if the jury thought this, uh, Joseph, if they said this, but I mean, when you look at that picture at night, you could see that that could happen to anybody, no matter what condition they're in, because it looks like you're driving down a regular street. Yeah, I, I didn't. I don't remember talking to the jury about it, but you're absolutely right. That's that's the most striking thing is that when you look at the street, the the street lights. They are over the middle of the street and right. they are over on the middle of the street on the island side and they're over on the middle of the street uh, on the western side, which is actually by the Morton Salt Building. I don't know if you're familiar with that on the way to O'Hare from downtown Chicago, but that's where this happened. And it's just a straight line yeah. and it's the same color lights. And, and that's exactly uh, that. That's the, what, what Katrina talked about with the human factors expert for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it is it is relatable. I mean, it's. You look at that picture, and for me, I immediately just thought of, of places, of times where I've 
been driving to pick somebody up or whatever in at late at night when it's dark in an unfamiliar part of town. And when you see the video of her car actually going over and how fast it happens, it, what a short distance it is between her car being on the road and then just gone. It's very shocking. Compelling. Yeah. So, so there was a, uh, there's a, a, a Perillo car dealership or leasing agency there. And that's a video that was recovered by the Chicago police. And it is shocking how short that uh, the amount of ground was from the edge of the curb, almost at that, a 45 degree angle, probably about six to eight feet. And then a, a huge drop off. The drop off was 20 feet. Yeah, that that yeah. car, that car in that video, I think that was really important because that car disappears in less yeah. than a second. So fast. And and I'm wondering, did you all um, in terms of identifying that you wanted to use a human factors expert pretty early on? I'm, I'm guessing I'm guessing you probably made that decision pretty early on. But I'm wondering if they tried to Dalbert that expert or if it's we don't have Dalbert. Oh, you don't. So Illinois doesn't do do Dauber. We do um, do fry. Fry. We do fry. Okay. And um, so we we hired a human. We hired a human factors expert, and we hired Doctor Popsicle. Right. In time, because I wanted somebody to talk about the insane, terrifying experience yeah. that somebody would have knowing that they were dying, they were, they went from driving to go pick their boyfriend up at the club that, that you know, I mean, just think about this. This is a 25 year old girl. She's a fashion model. She's got the world at her feet. She's in love with this guy who's a DJ. She's going to pick him up. They're getting, and, and all of a sudden the rug is pulled out from under her and in that brief period of time, her car uh, goes over the edge, drops down 20 feet, turtles, and sinks. And then she's in there. They find her in the back seat, which indicates a struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, she was trying to say, well, what is that experience like? So we found, thank God, I, you know, we found Gordon Giesbrecht. And um, he was able to talk about the experience of drowning and the way that you drown and what it's like to try, how long it takes for a car to fill up because we wanted to put up evidence. You know, we wanted the jury to hear evidence of how long that she was suffering because it wasn't just, you know, the loss that her family experienced, but we wanted to prove. And listen, I don't remember exactly what the numbers were, but I think the jury gave her $2 million for... 30 to 60 seconds of pain and suffering. That's astonishing. Those are burning alive numbers. I mean, this is, drowning's terrible, but that, that, imagine the horror. And so we had people that really, and Katrina explained it in a brilliant way. We put the meat on the bone in every way, and we didn't leave anything to chance in terms of what we had uh, and what we use to prove the case. Yeah. And so that's why you're right. It was a, what a terror, that video was terrifying. And then imagining, you know, you don't have to tell a jury to put themselves in the shoes of the victim when you show them that video. Right. They do. 
Well, and, and my father put on uh, Professor Giesbrecht and one video that I wasn't able to, to find to send to you, um, but was shown to the jury was how quickly a car upside down fills up with water. Mm. And it's not like you see in the video and the movies where there's plenty of time to open windows. The, 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 the water just pushes down the windows and rushes in very, very quickly. I mean, it looks like a rapid coming into the car especially upside down. So I, I, I think YouTube, you can find Gordon. I, I, I think that that really played into the jury feeling for Irma as she's upside down in the dark water rushing in as Katrina really emphasized during her closing. Yeah. Well, and then, and then you described, is this something I'd never heard of before, but this concept of dry drowning, yeah. the, she actually didn't have any water in her lungs. Is that right? Well, what happens is, according to the expert, uh, particularly with the Chicago River, I guess, the just the natural, the pollutants in the water. And it's a very, it, there's a lot of debris from, you know, silt on the bottom, you know, different types of plant-based, you know, you know, um, uh, you know, articles in the water. And I guess, you know, at that point in time, the water's probably 50 degrees at best because it's still May. So the car goes upside down. And what happens is this cold, but very um, sort of uh, murky, polluted water goes into uh, the mouth and the nose and into the lungs. And once it enters the throat, so some of it went into her lungs. But what happens is that there is um, the vocal cords spasm because of the irritant in the water. So it's not as if she can't, um, it, it's not that she can't breathe, she can't move air at all. She can't inhale or exhale because <sighs> of that. Right, so it's a, it's a horrible, horrible um, way to die because frankly, it's, it, it's a dry drowning, which means that the throat just closes up and I think that was just so it's a, it's a horrible thing to have to relate to a jury, mm -hmm. you know, to explain yes. it to them. And Ian is absolutely right. They ended up um, the jury ended up awarding uh, 2.89 million. So $2,890,000 for her death, meaning what she experienced in those last, you know, minutes of her life. And it's, it, it really is. It's just so painful. I did want to mention that um, one of the things that came out during the damages and I had retained uh, Dr. Moses, who was an incredible expert. I'd never used a grief expert before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he was incredible because what he did is he tied together the family experience having lived through the Bosnian War. I don't know if you were aware of that. Yeah, I was... Yeah, I wanted to make sure you did talk about uh, Irma and her family, because it sounded like they had not only just a very close and special relationship, but had just gone through, uh, you know, uh, uh, her childhood sounded, uh, you know, just amazing that, you know, not many people would understand. Do you want to talk about that for a second, Katrina? Sure. Um, you know, uh, a credit to Ian in, in getting Dr. Moses, because he really put that into perspective. And so they were from Bosnia, and um, Irma was very young at the time uh, that the Bosnian War broke out in, in Sarajevo. And um, Fahim, the father, had worked for um, like a power plant in Bosnia. Uh, 
And at the time that the war broke out, he was not in the city and not in the area. And as a result of the war, uh, Irma, her mother, and her two older twin sisters that were eight years older than her were essentially trapped in the city. And their father could not get in or get out. And they spent many months by themselves. And it was during the period of time where there was a great deal of, you know, air bombing that was going on. There's no electricity. There's no heat. There's no grocery store. There's no no um, basic necessities. And people were literally burning furniture from their homes and from other structures that had been bombed. And during that period of time, it was a period of tremendous stress and uh, tremendous sacrifice. Finally, finally, um, Fahim was able to get back and reunite with his family. And they went to a uh, refugee camp after that initially. And ultimately, after reevaluating their circumstances and, you know, what was available, uh, Fahim decided that he was going to move um, Irma and his wife to the United States because the two older girls were in uh, university. Mm. So when they came to the United States, Irma was just a freshman in high school, but she was a very, very brilliant young student. Um, And she was very, very smart. She had gotten her degree as an EMT and she had other degrees uh, that she was pursuing beyond just her modeling. But ultimately, the reason why this ties into damages and through the testimony of Dr. Moses was that the family, because of what they experienced together, they were closer than perhaps most families would be. And as a consequence, the loss of Irma was that much more devastating. And what had happened is as a result of their earlier experiences, it was as if both the older sisters and the parents had put all of their hope, all of their you know aspirations into Irma's successes, into her achievements in America. And As a consequence, um, as a result of her death, Dr. Moses had described that Fahim was in a state of arrested grief. He could not move on. And shortly before Irma had died, uh, Fahim's wife had died. Irma's mother died from cancer. Mm -hmm. And so it was just Fahim and Irma that were left. And for many months, you know, they tried to, uh, you know, pull themselves back together. And Irma almost took on somewhat of a maternal, you know, role in wanting to be there for her dad. So it was really a devastating set of circumstances. And I thought um, the grief expert that uh, Ian had retained was phenomenal. He was just- now, let, let me just add a little bit to that. I, I, I had the, the good fortune to travel to Bosnia to do the, the sister's depositions. It was a, it was a, um, a mind awakening and uh, experience for me. And um, we use Ken Moses as a pioneer in grief and sorrow. Um, he is, he, his theory is known as attachment theory and he was a, a professor at Northwestern and uh, he's gone on to teach this all over the world. And like Katrina said, um, when, when someone's hopes and dreams 
are tied up in the successes, the failures, <clears throat> the ups and downs of another person's life, that's an attachment. And that is where grief and sorrow comes from. And that is the, you know, Ken basically was able to interview the family and identify um, all of the different attachments that they experienced and lost in in when they lost Irma. And I, I just want to say this because I've used Ken a number of time and times and I've used other grief and sorrow experts to discuss, you know, and I've heard a lot of skepticism about this because not everybody's doing it yet, but in Illinois, grief and sorrow are an element of damages uh, for, you know, in, under the Wrongful Death Act and have been since I think 2008. And, you know, I don't think people understand loss. And even though everybody says, well, everybody has experienced loss in their life, I don't think people understand it the way that you and I might think about it as trial lawyers. And I think someone like Kevin, he's not the only one out there, but in my opinion, he's the best. And, and I don't even know if he's, he's getting older now. Uh, but he is able to articulate the way people grieve and how they experience loss and what it means to them in a way that I've never seen anyone else do. And I think it's additive. It's not, um, you know, take, you know, the argument I've heard a million times from defense lawyers is anybody, any, a jury doesn't need a grief and sorrow expert to, to explain loss to them. I say BS. Anything, anytime that you can go and explain something in a scientific way, I think it helps the jury understand. So, and so everything Katrina said, I agree with. Uh, and I just think that if this, that's just something else to take away from this conversation is how important it is to prove your entire case. Yeah. And, you know, why would you leave meat off the bone? I understand not every case justifies hiring an expert on attachment theory of grief and loss. I mean, that's extra. But if you want to win, you want to win. And that's, you know, I'm not going to say that, you know, that Ken is responsible for a certain amount of the damages, but he didn't hurt. So I think probably right. just of the complexity of the dynamics of the family and because of the extraordinary history of the family, it really did make a huge difference because I definitely felt like I learned so much. And when you hear the words of arrested grief, it, it really is pretty powerful that you um, and, and it was a very, very, very important uh, element of the case. I definitely think it was. Yeah. Well, and I like that idea, too, because then it's not it, it feels it's a different feel of testimony that still goes to damages. And it's not um, it's not all on your client's shoulders. You know, the trial's hard for them. Their testimony is obviously hard for them. So the idea that it can still speak to their loss without them having to do it. Um, I like that about it as well. Particularly yeah. Because you keep what happens is when you put on lay individuals, you know, lay witnesses, the defendant's always going to object when it comes to you're asking them 
about, you know, were you depressed? Were you, and, and you're just going to get a myriad of objections because they're not experts. And even though there's sort of this gray area, uh, the bottom line is that a, an expert in grief and sorrow, like, um, you know, Ken Moses really, um, made a big difference. And, and as I said, I had not had the experience of having someone like that. And I really saw that dimension, that other, you know, um, that, that other perspective on damages that mm-hmm. I hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was just going to add, I mean, one other part of the tragedy of this case is that I think I read, she was just days away from visiting her sisters yeah. right over in, in Bosnia, yeah. her, both her and her dad were going to go. Yeah. Yes. Um, so just a, just another sort of part to the, the tragedy that this family went through. Um, well, uh, we really appreciate the time going through this case and this, uh, for this extremely tragic case and, and, uh, just great, uh, trial lawyering and, and great work you did on it. Um, is there anything else you want to make sure everybody, you know, knows about the, uh, Sabanovic versus uh, city of Chicago case that we haven't uh, talked about? Just that they were a wonderful, wonderful family, and it was, uh, you know, obviously it was a, a, a tragedy that should have not happened and could have not happened, and sadly it did. But yeah. certainly, I think that it brought a lot of attention to um, these these issues, uh, it, particularly when it comes to the city and the roadways and the responsibility of the city to maintain the roadways. So when I, I would ho- I would hope and I, I, I don't want to assume that the city of Chicago has fixed that area so that it, this won't happen again. They, they have um, they content. So, you know, I, I agree. I fall in love with all my clients, families. Um, that's just how I am. I become emotionally attached to people. And um, I don't want to, we've been talking about the Sabanovics and what a wonderful family they are, but I want to also talk about uh, Michael Jansen and his family because I don't want them to be forgotten. We didn't go to trial. Uh, we didn't take their case to trial. There were some challenging aspects to the Jansen case that didn't exist in the Sabanovic case, and we didn't have the video of the accident happening. And we weren't quite sure exactly how to prove it. And there were some doubts. And, and, and obviously a lot more time had passed by. But that was another um, wonderful family who experienced the same, very similar, not the same, but the very similar type of loss. And I, I will say that once we concluded that case, um, we got. I got a call from uh, Mark Harrison, who was the corporation counsel, assistant corporation counsel at the city of Chicago, and we went over jointly and we lifted the protective order that we had had on the, um, the both sides of the river, and the city has since um, re redeveloped that area and and changed it to, because, like I said. It was literally the only place where the river and the road met and there was no barricade from where the river meets the canal on the south side all the way up to where the north branch turns into the Plains River or whatever it is up in the suburbs. The Literally the only place and the city went and fixed it. Now, it only took three lives when no lives should have been lost, um, but they did change it, and 
So, I mean, that's something to feel good about. Yeah. Well, uh, we really appreciate it. And I want to remind everybody that we've been talking about the uh, Sabanovic versus City of Chicago case that was tried back in 2016 in Cook County, Illinois, uh, and resulted in a $13.8 million verdict on behalf of the estate of uh, Irma Sabanovic. And uh, and we have been talking to uh, Katrina Taraska, uh, Ian Alexander, and Joseph Prizer, uh, all of the firm Goldberg and Goldberg in Chicago, Illinois. And if you wanna look them up, you can go to chicagomedicalmalpracticefirm.com. Guys, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast. Podcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.